Good morning, church. What a joy to be with you this morning and this week. What a joy to lock arms with each of you in service to a great king. It's an honor. It's an honor to serve under his lordship with each of you. As many of you know, we've been living and working in various parts of North Africa for the past 14 years. And where we live every day, five times a day, beginning around five in the morning, we hear the call to prayer. Allahu Akbar. It's called out on loudspeaker, an announcement that God is great, and an invitation, a reminder to come and pray at the mosque. And no matter where you are in the world, you'll hear it in Arabic. It's always in Arabic. One of the communities where we serve tell a story that one time the Muazin in their village got drunk. The Muazin is the one that does the call to prayer. He got drunk and he was out of his mind and he stumbled to the microphone and he picked it up and he called out the call to prayer in his own mother tongue, the Nas language. Something like, People started running from all around and they gathered at the mosque and they bound him and they threw him to the ground and they beat him. And they said, this is not a real language. This is a language of animals and of monkeys. If you want God to hear your prayers, you will pray in Arabic. But God has a dream. And it's more than a dream, it's a glimpse of the future that he gives us in Revelation chapter seven. Read this with me. A crowd too great to count which echoes the promise to Abraham. He would have descendants that are too great to count, but these are spiritual descendants too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language. And he says it four ways so we can't miss it. And they're standing before the throne and before the lamb. They're clothed in white robes and they held palm branches in their hands. And they're shouting with a great roar in every language, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. It is the plans of God that every language should be used to worship and glorify him. In May of this year, I found myself in the gardens of an old Anglican church in the heart of the North African city where we live now. And I was in the gardens because there were so many people there we couldn't fit inside the church building. This was Pentecost Sunday, and we later realized upon reflection that this was the largest gathering of believers that this city had seen publicly since the days of the early church, since the days that Augustine was preaching down the road. And we were all gathered there, and we read these words that we're about to read together from Acts chapter 2 in 12 different languages. And I was one of the readers, and I could not help but get emotional as I looked out over this crowd of Arab college kids, of South Korean global workers like ourselves, 
of persecuted believers from neighboring countries who had fled here to hide, of West African diplomats and sub-Saharan immigrants who had walked across the desert and were getting ready to cross the sea to Europe, all of us gathered together in one place, and we read these words. Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. They all stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. And Peter goes on to say, we're not drunk, because apparently that's something that happens when you get drunk, you speak other languages. He says, we're not drunk. And he points them back to their own scriptures, to the Bible. And he says, this is what God has always said was going to happen. He quotes from the prophet Joel, this is in that same chapter, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And those days I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark. The moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says this is all happening exactly as God said it would. And the people asked, what can this mean? It's a really good question. What can this mean? Do you remember the story of Babel? It's kind of this weird story we have in Genesis chapter 11. I feel like we cover it in Sunday school a lot and then don't do a lot with it as adults. But in Genesis chapter 11, we have these people that all get together and they say, we want to make ourselves famous. We want to be known. We want to be great. And they decided to build a tower, a tower reaching to heaven. And God was not pleased with their plan. He didn't like their pride and their self-sufficiency. 
their desire to exalt themselves. And so he decided to proliferate their languages and he scattered them throughout the world. This ancient story, kind of this origin story of languages, still speaks to a reality today. If I were to ask you, how many languages do you think there are in the world today, what number comes to your mind? What might that be? That number is 7,395. Those are living languages today. These aren't languages that have died out or ancient languages living, spoken, and some signed languages being used by humans all over our planet today, 7,395. At Pentecost, we see echoes of Babel, these ancient echoes drawing back to Genesis 11, but it's not Babel being restored. Because notice with me what Acts chapter two does not say. It doesn't say that all the people that were gathered together that day could miraculously understand the Greek or the Aramaic that the apostles were speaking. That would have been an incredible miracle, but that's not what happened. The text doesn't say that everyone there was going back to this day of linguistic homogeneity when they all spoke one language and were great again. Instead, It says that people from all over the known world could hear the apostles speaking about the wonderful things that God has done in their own language. The vision is not one language being trumpeted from the top of a tower saying we are great, but the vision has always been thousands and thousands of language gathered in one voice crying out God, is great. Not Babel being restored, but Babel being redeemed. In politics, in human systems, in our relationships, language is always used as a tool of power. It's how we get the upper hand. It's how we assert ourselves. I even remember growing up in Kenya, uh, there was a, a couple I had heard of who spoke Kiswahili in their home. That was the language that they used um, all the time up until the point that they got in an argument. And when they got in a fight, they would switch languages. And she would fight in English and he would fight in their shared mother tongue because those are the languages in which they had the most power culturally. We always do this with language, literally and figuratively. We use language as a way to control but not so when God walks into the room. When God shows up, language is used to empower. When God shows up, language is used to make sure that no one is left out, that no one is left without witness, that everyone is invited in. At Pentecost, the crowd rightly recognized that these were good old boys from backwater Galilee. They could not possibly have been speaking these languages except through the power of God. This miracle of tongues was born straight from the imagination of the Father. Everyone, everywhere will hear about the wonderful things that God has done in their own language. This has always been God's dream. And so maybe, 
Maybe a drunk Mosin in a refugee camp mosque was closer to the heart of God than anyone might have imagined when he cried out in the Nas language, God is great. But let's back up for a minute. Before this miracle happens at Pentecost, look with me to Acts chapter 1. The apostles are with Jesus, and they have a question for Jesus. Read with me. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to restore, to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, Jesus replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The apostles kept asking about themselves, about their nation, about their kingdom, about their people. And Jesus doesn't answer their question. It's the wrong question. This question represents a vision that is much too small for God. When God chooses people, it has always been about blessing the whole world. When God chose Abraham, he said to him, all the families on earth, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Then he expanded this to Israel. And he said, I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And now Jesus says that prophecy from Isaiah is going to be fulfilled, is being fulfilled among you, among us, his church as he makes us witnesses, not only here and over there and to those people, but to the very ends of the earth. I'll never forget a time I was in a refugee camp uh, where we lived in North Africa, and there's one tribe that have a Christian background, that have a number of churches and have for several decades, and all of the other tribes and communities are unreached Muslims. I was sitting with some pastors and church leaders from this well-established church. And they said, Brian, we've got a problem with you. You've come here and you've lived close to us for many years. But you always spend time with those Muslims. You invest your resources, you invest your energy, you do trainings, you spend time among those Muslim peoples. Aren't you a Christian? If you're a Christian, then you should be investing here with us. We are the Christians here. It stung. It hurt my heart. And it wasn't a week later, I was sitting with a fellowship of new Muslim background followers of Jesus. And they were reflecting on their people and their tribe And they said, Brian, how is it that the Kudu people over there, just 50 miles away, have had the gospel for 60 years and they never sent anyone to tell us? The reality is that 42.2% of the world's people today 
are unreached. That means that less than 2% of the people group communities that they are a part of are Christians. And 26% of the world's population have almost no exposure to the gospel at all. Less than a tenth of a percent are Christians. These people have never met a Christian, they've never seen a church, they've never seen a Bible, and they wouldn't know how to find one if they wanted one. And it turns out that only 3% of global workers are sent to the unreached, and only 1.8% of all of the money that is raised and given for global missions by the global church is spent trying to reach the unreached. These are the global stats. But Hills Church, these are not your stats. We are a church that is asking for nations and generations, and you have not been content with building a kingdom for yourselves with a vision that is too small for God, but you are doing everything that you can to see that no people are left out, that everyone hears about the wonderful things that God has done. And I wanna thank you, church. God's vision is for all people everywhere and his plan is to use us, his church, to bless the whole world. And this church gets it. And I wanna thank you. Thank you for thinking outside of yourselves to reach others. And this is why, as a church, you're investing in 18 domestic church plants. This is why you've sent 27 families to five continents who are planting hundreds of churches and making disciples of thousands of people. This is why you're invested in 19 countries, including some of the most difficult, hostile, impoverished places in the world. You have not said no because it's hard and costly. This is why you're investing in Bible translation in five languages that otherwise have no scripture available, building the foundations that are needed for movements to Christ for generations to come. And I believe that as you continue to not allow yourselves to become the center of your vision, that God will continue to bless you. So thank you for casting a bigger, broader vision. And oh, the stories I could tell of what God is doing in the world. To be honest, Rick Ashley, I think, is a little nervous having global workers up here on stage. And so if we ever have a chance to do this again, I better keep this brief. But I've got to tell you about the Mapa people where we started work 14 years ago. The Mapa were in that 26% of the world with almost no access to the good news of Jesus. But because of God's great love for the Mapa, that is not the case today. Let me tell you about my favorite part of the Bible translation process. This is community checking. After we've drafted uh, a, a portion of scripture, the rough draft, then it's revised with exegetical checking, looking at the original languages, and then we go out among the people. And gather groups of Muslims and Christians and, and traditional religionists we gather young and old and men and women, and we sit together and read these verses of scripture that have never before been read in this language, in the history of the world. And we ask for feedback. It's not only that we want all these people to hear this amazing testimony of the Bible, but we also need their help. How do you say hope in Jum Jum? How do you say faith? How do you say forgiveness? How do you say perfume or alabaster jar? 
You know, Bible translation is, is hard work. And through this process, again, God brings his spirit and he connects with humanity and builds something afresh that becomes the holy scriptures for the Mapa people. Just like the incarnation is man and God uniting, it happens with human language and the spirit of God uniting and becoming a new Bible translation. And one day in community checking, there was a man among us, his name is, I'll call him uh, Umda Ahmed. He's the senior chief of the whole Mapa tribe. We didn't expect him to be there, but he showed up at this community checking session. He's a Muslim man of authority in the community. We saw him and we all began to pray in our hearts because we didn't know what he would say or what would happen. Our team started reading parables of Matthew. It had just been translated. Asking questions. The discussion was fruitful, gaining insight. Ahmed was quiet. And then at the very end, he said, I want to say something. And the small grass, that structure gets silent. And Umda Ahmed says, I want you all to know that these are good stories. These stories are good for our people. And he said, all of you Mapa who are gathered here, I want you to read and listen to these stories and to share them with your people and you translators. You keep doing this work to make sure that our people can hear these stories because they're good for our people. I said, thank you, God. He didn't, he had the opportunity to shut it all down. And instead, he authorized his people to go forward and read and share these stories. Just months later, the Gospel of Matthew was published and there was a dedication and a thousand people gathered or almost a thousand gathered and a Muslim man got up at the end and he said, before today, I thought this book was for Christians. But today, I have realized that this book is for everybody. This is our book I've got to tell you about one other person who I've met in the last 14 months. I'll call him Mosin. I think Mosin would describe himself as a Muslim, but he is a passionate follower of Jesus. He's been frustrated with all the barriers in the Arab world that make it difficult for Arabs like himself to come to know and follow Jesus. And so he translated a new Bible translation in Arabic for Muslims because he also believes that this book is for everyone. And he wants everyone to see and know and read this and to find Jesus and to find life. And there are Muslims throughout, the, throughout North Africa and the Middle East who are reading these in Islamic institutions, who are sharing these in the mosques, who are preaching from these in mosques, from the gospel of Jesus. And Mosin once told me, you Christians, and again, he's, a Jesus man. But he said, you Christians, you believe that Jesus belongs to you. But he said, Jesus is free. 
And Jesus is for everyone, everywhere. And this free Jesus, who is Lord not only of the church, but of the whole earth, has captured the heart of an Islamic scholar in North Africa. And this woman is now writing academic articles from the Gospels of Jesus in this translation, trying to create reform within Islam. Academic articles about Jesus' treatment of women and his treatment of the poor and those on the margins, trying to change the system from within so that people can learn to follow and obey the way of Christ. God is doing his work in ways and places that we cannot begin to imagine because he is Lord of the whole earth. And the day of Pentecost was just a mile marker on the way. And I got to read with me, actually. Let's read one more text from Matthew 24. It says, The good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. Now, I don't know what to do with Matthew 24. Rick Ashley, maybe you can give us a proper exegesis to this text. I've actually got a lot of questions. But there seems to be some connection between everyone hearing and the end of the world. And I got to tell you, this hasn't happened yet. As far as I can tell, the end hasn't come yet. And everyone hasn't heard yet. I mentioned that 26% of people have virtually no exposure to the gospel, the Bible, or church. Libby mentioned that there are 7,395 languages in the world. 1,347 of those still have no scripture and nobody working to translate it. And about 900 of those languages are spoken by communities that have almost no exposure to the gospel. We're a part of Pioneer Bible Translators, and in Pioneer Bible Translators, we have this as our future narrative. We say we will follow the Spirit's lead to fill the gaps in the translation movement so that we and our partners will see churches with Scripture transforming every language group on earth by 2050. When I first heard this 2050 business, I was confused, and I talked to our president, Greg Pruitt, What's with 2050? Aren't we just going to work on this till kingdom come, literally? But he's an engineer, and he loves spreadsheets. Any spreadsheet people out there? He loves spreadsheets and charts. I'm not one, but I try to surround myself with them. And Greg said, if you do the math, and the momentum that is happening right now continues, then sometime around the year 2033, the last translation for a language with no scripture will begin. So give that another 10, 15, 20 years, and we will see the day when every language in the world has the Bible, at least the New Testament. A a scholar in the Journal of Religious Studies did the math just about two months after Greg first presented this, and he's even more optimistic. This is his chart. This is the history of Bible translation, and you see the trend is pretty well flatlining, and then look at what God is doing in our day. It shoots up exponentially. This has never happened in the history of the world, but today God is making sure that everyone has access to his good news. And we know that a Bible is not enough. God didn't say go into all the world and translate Bibles. He said make disciples. 
And I've got good news for you there as well. David Garrison in his book, Wind in the House of Islam, counts only 10 movements to Christ from Muslim communities for the first 1,400 years of Islam. And then in just 12 short years, he counts 60 movements to Christ. And that's just as of 2012. God is doing something amazing. This vision is becoming a reality. And in our lifetime, if God gives us a long life, we will cross that milestone together of the day when everyone in the world has access to the good news. But the hardest work is still ahead. There's a reason why every language, every nation has yet to hear. And part of that reason is these communities live in some of the most difficult places in the world. Places marked by war and poverty and instability of every kind. And we know this firsthand. We know what it's like to lose a home to war. We know what it's like to drive to the airstrip to get on the evacuation flight and to have your kids stay on the floorboard so that they won't see what is lying in the road and to wonder about how that will affect them for the rest of their lives. We know what it feels like to have that knot in your stomach when you're walking up to the immigration official and to see him pocket your passports and say, would you step this way with me, please? A year ago today, literally today, this is not rhetorical exaggeration, a year ago today, I was in a village in West Africa um, standing with two little kids beside the freshly dug grave of their mama, who was my good friend, Katie, um, and teammate, who died of some unknown illness. Um, we know that this is not easy. We can testify that it costs something. And our stories are just a drop in the bucket. There are many, many, many other stories represented in this room today, each with their own flavor. And to be quite honest with you, I don't like telling these stories. And it's not because they are traumatic or they're hard to talk about. I think they can be distracting. Um, everybody loves a good global worker story. <laughs> um, but I've come to realize that these stories are not mine. They're not ours. They're not some of us in this room. They are ours. These are the stories of the church. These are your stories. You know what it costs. And you know that it's worth it. It is worth it. It is worth it. You have always been a church that knows to look to Judea and Samaria and beyond to the nations. You've always been a part of giving and praying and blessing and encouraging us. And even this week, so many of you have welcomed into your homes and fed and lent cars to a bunch of weird people that have shown up from all over the globe. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of this story. But this story is not finished yet. Our story is not finished. In Matthew 28, Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And church, we have not obeyed him yet. We haven't done it. And this is a call for all of us who profess to follow Jesus. 
We follow a God who leaves the 99 to find the one. And so today we invite you to pray about what your part in this great story is. Is your calling to go, to come, come, the water is fine. I promise you do not have to be a Bible translator in North Africa. There's a lot of things you can do. And I, I dare you to come and not be saved more than you save anybody else along the way. Is your calling to send when your kids or your grandkids say, I think I need to go, send them with your blessing, with your honor and with your love. Is your calling to give of your money and your time and your prayers, keep giving generously. And if your call is not to go, I have good news for you. The nations are showing up at your doorstep and they're not just out there anymore. They are here, they are coming. Find those people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and, and learn how to say hello to them in their language. Church, until all have heard, may we join God in holy dissatisfaction. May we not rest until our voices are one among the thousands, proclaiming together to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.